0: If you grew up in church, you've heard these passages read many times and they're so familiar that we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to kind of tune them out and for them to lose their power that they are so important. And what's going on is this, Jesus is beginning his public ministry, he's been healing people and and the reason why he's healing people is not just to, to be Mr. Powerful, it's because he demonstrates that the kingdom of God is at hand. He is the king, right? He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He, one of his main themes in the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but particularly in Matthew, is that the kingdom of God has arrived, and what you see is this kingdom demonstration through his miracles, and through his teaching, and through, of course through his resurrection, and he's giving a taste, a foreshadowing of his ultimate coming kingdom, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, which he keeps talking about. He's been doing all this healing, and so much so that a large crowd has gathered around. And so they've come now. Jesus goes up onto a mountainside to teach his disciples, and the crowd comes along also. And he's telling them about what life in the kingdom is, what it means, what he values as God. And then this morning, he's going to talk about his relationship, what he believes, what he thinks about God's law. And it might actually surprise you. Let's look. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus says in the middle of the sermon, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least In the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never eat, even enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. This past week, I started reading a a new book called The Good and Beautiful Life by an author named James Bryan Smith. And I started reading it because one of our gospel communities, our small groups, is going to be reading it along with our study of the Sermon on the Mount. It's so good, so I've started it. And the author tells this story about when he was a young pastor serving as a chaplain at a retirement center. And one day, one of the residents of this retirement center came up to him. His name was Ben and he was an imposing figure, well-dressed, perfectly groomed, older gentleman, and just had that that feeling of authority and power and life experience, and he pointed his finger at the young chaplain and said, young man, I want you to meet me in my room today, and Ben, this young chaplain, said, well, you know, of course, I'll do that, so he comes into the room later that day, and uh, Ben does not shake his hand. He instructs him to sit down, And they begin talking philosophy, and they begin talking uh, existentialism, and all this other stuff. And they kind of feel each other out. For several days, they keep talking. They meet for six days. But on the seventh day, Ben decides to confess his sins of his life to this young chaplain, to James. He tells him, I made my first million dollars when I was 25 years old. And by the time I was 45 years old, I was the wealthiest man in my state at a business it grew. I had a fortune. I had over 2,000 employees who looked up to me, but they feared me, every one of them. He said, I had three wives, all who left me either because of neglect or because they caught me in one of my many, many affairs. I have one daughter in her 40s, and she won't talk to me any longer. He said, I suppose you could say that I ruined my life because today I have nothing. I have plenty of money, but I sit here each day waiting to die. I have nothing but bad memories. I carried, uh, excuse me, I cared about no one in my life and today nobody cares about me. You, young man, are all I have. Now, when this man, Ben, was a younger man, why did he do what he did? Why did he make such what he now sees as horrible decisions at the end of his life? Why, with each step, why did he choose to have affairs? Why did, he have, why did he choose to be so mean to people? Why did he talks about in, in the story that he, ch- he s- stole from anyone he could steal from to, to get more money? To, he did everything. He cut every corner that he could in order to amass more fortune. Why did he do it? Why does anyone do it? And this book, which I totally agree with, says this. The reason why Ben made the decisions he did and the reason why all of us make the decisions we do is he was in a serious pursuit of happiness, believe it or not. You say, well, it doesn't work. He should have known that doesn't work. Living like that doesn't work. Yes, but why did he do it? Why do you do what you do? Why do we live the lives we lead? Because we are all in a pursuit of joy and a pursuit of happiness, and you say, well, there's twi- that's twisted then if that's what he's doing, but that is what we do. We make the decisions we make in our life, the choices we make, not because we think it'll bring us more pain. Let's face it, I'm talking about most of us most of the time, not 100% all the time, but most of us, when we make a decision in life, most of the time are doing so because we believe that decision will make us more happy, more blessed, that it will lead to a better life for ourselves or those people we love. And kind of an overarching theme I want us to see today, okay, and really ultimately for this series and the Sermon on the Mount, because what Jesus is doing in a sense is he is calling his disciples up and he's saying, let me share with you the law the way I see it, as as the author of it. I want to teach you. You've heard it said this, but let me tell you what I say. So, we believe the good life is found in our own truth. We do. We believe the good life is found in our own truth, but the blessed life, the truly blessed life, the good life, is formed on God's law, not in kicking against it, not in rebellion against it, not in pushing God's law away. Friends, if there's anything I could get just crammed into my own brain and heart and yours, it would be this. There is more joy, there is more beauty, there is more goodness found in being obedient to God's way of life, even though at first it seems so hard, so difficult, it feels like a fence. it feels like restraint. I want to do this to seek pleasure, and God warns us there is no pleasure there. We think there is, but there's not in our twistedness and our bentness and our selfishness. But this is what we do. We are all seeking pleasure. We are all seeking happiness. We go outside of definitions that are within God's bounds seeking happiness, but it lets us down. We believe the good life is found in our own truth. Listen to the language we use in our culture. Maybe you've said things like this even recently, like, well, that's not my truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. But... If there is a God, an author, an authority over all things, then he is the one who has the authority to say, but this is actually true, regardless of what you're saying. There's a truth, and Jesus is bold enough to make that claim. I am truth. The psalmist, King David, Psalm 119 says in verse 48, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments. Think about that. Is that how you feel about God's laws? <laughs> about any law. <laughs> about any rule, about any regulation. I am not a law keeper by, by bent, by personality. Like, I'd rather, you know, just let me kind of do what I want to do. I don't, I don't like driving the speed limit. I don't like living by your commandments or your rules, right? I want my own truth for speed limits, <laughs> for example. And, and that's not what Jesus is talking about, by the way. No, I'm kidding. But... Uh, the psalmist says, I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. And really, that's the heart of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate psalmist. Jesus is the one who inspired the psalmist to write this. I love your commandments, O Lord. I love your statutes. I lift up my hands towards your commandments. Why? Because in, in essence, it's the will of God for your lives. We kick against it. We rebel against it. But it is meant to be a blessing to us all. So Jesus gathers his disciples on this mountain to teach them the kingdom, about the kingdom, but also to explain his heart behind the law of God. Two things about this today. The Christ and the law, he fulfills it. We're going to talk about his fulfilling the law. And the follower of Christ and what our relationship, the Christian, what, what our relationship should be to the law, and it's to follow it. Fulfillment and following. Jesus says, I'll read it again in verses 17 through 18, Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill them. And I'll stop there. Jesus has been making it so clear, and the whole New Testament does, that those who are entering the kingdom of God are not what you might have thought. If you were sitting in the crowd that day, especially if you're a Pharisee or a scribe or a religious leader, you would have had certain assumptions about who was going to enter the kingdom of heaven when it came. There was a saying during that day that if only two people were to enter the kingdom of heaven, only two, one would be a Pharisee and the other would be a scribe. Interesting. And Jesus says, I've not come, I have not come to. To put away the law, I have come to fulfill it because what's happening is as Jesus is saying it is the meek who will enter the kingdom of God. It is the humble, not the proud, that will enter the kingdom of God. It is the mournful, not the boastful, that will enter the kingdom of God. He knows what they are thinking. These people in the crowd, especially these religious leaders, they worry. If you preach, grace like that. If you keep preaching grace, that, hey, (laughs) you can't earn a relationship with God. It's through humility. It's through repentance. You can't keep the law of God perfectly. Someone outside of you has to, if you keep talking that way, Jesus, you're going to take away everybody's motive to love God and to keep the law. I think what he's actually saying is he doesn't care about God's law, the meek, the mild, the humble, the gospel he is preaching is so scandalous that he has to, he has to qualify and he, he, has to, he has to clarify, I do not abolish the law and the prophets. The law, when we hear the word law, we just think of rules and regulations, but that phrase actually meant the first five books of the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish them. And there, there are many rules in there, right? I mean, it, but there's a lot of story as well. Genesis, for example. So it's, it's the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Old Testament. The law, I did not come to abolish that, the law and the prophets, which was another summary of the rest of the Old Testament, in essence. I did not come o- to put away God's law. I did not come away to put uh, aside the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. I came Instead, and this is one of Matthew's main themes he wants us to see, to fulfill them, to fulfill them. How does he fulfill the law of God? And I want to spend some time unpacking that this morning. Jesus fulfilled the law through his teaching is one of the ways. Sinclair Ferguson is this preacher that I've had the pleasure to hear and a professor a couple of times, and he has this incredibly thick Scottish accent. And if anyone has a thick Scottish accent, you can just preach. I mean, (laughs) it doesn't matter what you're saying. I will listen, right, all day, like just just more, more. I mean, so I've, I've heard this guy preach, and it's amazing, and I'm so tempted to use Scottish Baroque as I quote him right now, but I won't because it'll be ridiculous. But Sinclair Ferguson writes about this text. The Pharisees accused Jesus of abolishing the law But their traditional interpretations of the law weakened its power to search the motives of the hearts of men. They kept thinking, well, if you take away the commandments and its grace— then, then you're taking away motive, and what he's saying is, no, you're actually destroying motive. Jesus didn't weaken the law. He let it out of its cage in which the Pharisees had imprisoned it, allowing it to tear to pieces our assumptions that we're able to keep it in our own strength. And this is what religion always does, friends. It does. Like If you dig into any other religion, any other world system or whatever that's not preaching the goodness of the grace of God towards us in salvation, what you get is a list of rules and regulations that while they may seem difficult on their surface, in actuality are not that hard to keep. It'll be like, don't drink this, don't go there, don't do that, and you'll say, ah, but I want to drink that, and I want to eat that, and I want to go there, and that sounds hard, I couldn't do that, but I promise you, (laughs) I promise you, these things are easy to keep in comparison to the heart of the law, which is what? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Now, if, if, if somebody said, hey, we're starting a new faith, a new religion, and you got to follow it, and I, you need to do that perfectly, then you're in trouble because, think about it, your, your motives, you can't accomplish that. I've tried, man. I try really every day, and, and I make it about 15 minutes <laughs> before I'm like, i got like nine things to repent of already. So it's like every day, this is so hard. Love God just perfectly and love your neighbors yourself. That is the heart of the law. Religion, though, tries to make rules and regulations that are standards that can be kept. And while they may be hard for you, because you like whatever they're saying you can't have, you can't have blueberry pie in our religion. Okay, that would be difficult, I love it, but it's so much easier than loving God with all my being and loving my neighbor as much as myself. And as we listen to Jesus' teaching He keeps, he's gonna say, as we dig into this sermon later about anger next week, he's gonna say this. He's gonna say, You've heard it said about murder. But I say, But I say, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother and you say, You fool, you're already guilty of murder because you have a murderous heart. Pharisees say, Don't murder. I'm good, I've never killed, I've not literally killed anyone, and Jesus says, no, actually the way Father, Son, and Holy Spirit see it, is that if you are embittered against someone, and that you want to kill them in your heart, even though you may not physically carry it out, before God, you're actually guilty of that, because, because you have a heart, your heart is there, for, for, see, God's strange compared to us, he actually cares about our heart, he actually cares about our motives and what we're thinking and feeling and so forth. We just want to stay on the surface. He says, no, your heart, it matters. It always matters. And so what's interesting about Jesus, though, all the other rabbis would say, you've heard it said this, but, but Rabbi so-and-so says this. And they would use that mantra to go back and forth. And, but they would always appeal to another teacher. The, the prophet says this, and the rabbi so-and-so says this. But Jesus comes along and he says, you've heard it said, but I say no one did that. No one, no one, nobody, nobody ever did that except Jesus, because he's saying, I alone have the authority to say, (laughs) this is what I say. You don't have to check another rabbi. You don't have to check another teacher. I'm God in the flesh, and he fulfills the law because he's clarifying it for us. Let me tell you what this actually means. I wish there were more. I've got, like, 9,000 other questions that I wish Jesus would have gotten into all the details. But what he chooses to address, he clarifies. Next, he, Jesus fulfilled the law through his life. I've already told you, the heart of the law is to love God with everything you got, all, all your soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors, yourself. We have one who did that in Jesus Christ. What none of us have been able to do, Jesus was able to do. He kept the law. He fulfilled it by actually keeping it not for five minutes or when you're asleep. I'm not even sure we do it when we're asleep. But he did it 24-7 every day of his life as a human being. And that's important. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, talking about Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all people because all sinned. Now, We've preached through Romans before. This this would take a lot of time to unpack to get into all the details. But Adam served as a representative for humanity. It's like federal government in a way, which you may or may not like. (laughs) But he served as a representative for us so that what he did in choosing sin affected all people. This is what Paul says in Romans 5. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Now, that sounds like we have union with Adam, that we're connected to Adam, that we're, we're, we're like, like this with Adam. And I don't know about you, but I don't like that a whole lot. <laughs> I mean, I remember when I was a kid... <laughs> getting thrown in with a whole group of people, like, I just was, like, standing here, I, d- I wasn't, you know, like, and then next thing you know, I'm in trouble for just being in the room, and that's kind of what this is, like, hey, you were represented by Adam, and you say, I, I don't like it, it seems so unfair that this brokenness, this fallenness, that we would be connected to one man, but thanks be to God, and I've got lots of questions about that side of it, but thanks be to God, we have another man that we have union with by faith that represents us, that can lead to our salvation. One man led to death. The other man, Jesus Christ, who's fully God and fully man. That's why he had to be a man. He lived his life for God and fulfilled the law, keeping the law. A real person, not an angel, uh, not just God, himself, God in the flesh, God as man, a human being, kept the law perfectly. So we now have a representative who has obeyed the law of God. Romans 5:18 uh, and 19 says this, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness and but that when he says that one act of righteousness not one it's it's the totality of his life has laid, leads to our justification and life for all men. And when you hear this men, it means mankind, women as well. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus fulfills the law through his life because he kept it. He clarified it by his teaching. He kept it in actuality in his life. And next, Jesus fulfilled the law through his death. Romans 6.23 is this, for the wages of sin is death. You've perhaps heard this before. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The payment of sin is death, the wage of sin, what you earn through sin. And here's the thing, like even though Adam represented us and we all, we know that we've all gladly in our free will fallen, broken God's law, run from it, flee from it. So yes, we have this representative head, but I know I have gladly, joyfully, wrongfully rebelled against God my entire life, okay? So I can't just blame him and say, basically what I'm saying is, if I were Adam, I would have done the same thing he did. If you were Adam, you would have done the same thing he did. But Jesus fulfilled the law through his life and through his death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God in Jesus is is eternal life. One of the simplest ways, you ask little kids back in our children's ministry day, like, tell me, what's the good news about Jesus? How can I have my sins forgiven? They say, well, Jesus died on a cross for your sins. I mean, that's, isn't that kind of the simplest way to say it? Like, and that doesn't say all of it, but most people who are warm to Christianity or are Christians, like, if you just said, give me the simplest way to say it, like, how would I say it? People will often say, well, Jesus died on a cross for my sins. And most of us don't know what that means or, like, the depth of that statement or, or, or why the, impl- you know, the implications of that, but that is so true, obviously, We've sinned against God. We need to be forgiven. So why doesn't God just say, and I remember sitting in seminary, like second year, I'm, I'm ha- almost halfway done with seminary going, why didn't ju- you know, God just say you're forgiven? Why does he have to do this gruesome thing of crucifying his own son? Because the penalty of sin is death. And I know you can argue with God about this if you'd like, but this is what he says as the authority it's, it's death. There's a death sentence, but I know you have problems with that too. You got problems with the Adam thing. You got problem with the penalty of sin is death. I get it. But look where it goes in his salvation. He doesn't place, he, he's saying, I don't want this to fall on you. I want this instead to fall on me so that it can never fall on you. Each of us deserves death and to be separated from God, but the free gift of God is that Jesus stood in that place and received my just penalty and yours. So what does that mean? Well, basically it means this, and the gospel is this good, you, you're not gonna, you just can't believe how good it is. The gospel literally is that Jesus receives what you deserved. And you understand that part, perhaps, but what you have a hard time believing is the second part that's also true. And theologians call this the double imputation. Jesus on the cross received what you deserved. Death, separation. My God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus, then you receive, you and me, by faith, what Jesus deserves. And that part, I'm spending nearly every day of my life trying to get my mind around. It's why I have to go to the men's retreat to hear Pastor Smart remind me again and again it's that good. Your identity's in this, it's not in this. It can't be in money. Money's never died for you, but Jesus did. Money's never actually made you wealthy, and it's, I mean, I know, but like, you know, Jesus is like, has true wealth, and he's filled up your account with his rights, he's given you everything and more. Jesus fulfills the law in those three ways, and then Jesus tells us to follow the law. The Christian in the law, he or she follows it. Let's read in verses 19 through 20. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom, but whoever does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And I know what you're thinking. You're saying, well, that sounds like works. That sounds like if you do this, then you can enter the kingdom of God. We'll get back to that in just a second. Another point of clarification here. When we're talking about the law, and there's many laws in here from like hey, if you have a skin disease, you can't go to church in the Old Testament and you can't eat shellfish and you can't eat pork and things like that. There's all these ceremonial laws, there's there's sacrificial law. What is Jesus talking about when he's talking about the law at this point? He's talking about the moral law. This is my belief and conviction. He's talking about the moral law. His his, and summarized in the Ten Commandments, and then even more summed up by love God with all your heart, love your neighbors yourself. That's what he's talking about. The law of God is the Ten Commandments summarized by those two things that I just mentioned. For example, why do we Christians not, why are we not going to sacrifice a lamb this morning for our sins? Why isn't there a lamb out in the parking lot that a little bit later we're going to, we're going to bring in here, and we're going to do the gross thing and kill this lamb and sh- shed its blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Because Jesus fulfilled the law because he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we have his broken body and shed blood here this morning, but there's, that will point and represent what he did. He, he has already done that. There's, there's no need any longer. So Jesus has fulfilled the law in so many aspects of those ceremonial ways that we no longer we no longer do that. We, we now look to Christ by faith. So, what about grace? Seems like Jesus is saying, if, you know, he says in John 15, for example, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. What does that mean? What is he talking about? When he says, we must have to have righteousness greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. What is, what's he talking about? What about? I thought he was talking about the meek and the mild and and grace. The gospel changes our relationship to God, and please hear this. Religion says, if you obey, you'll be accepted. We say that around here a lot. If you obey, you'll be accepted. And the gospel, though, is this. You are accepted, therefore obey. We are called to love God through through keeping the law, and and he's fulfilled it. But in his love for us, our natural response is, Is to walk in his commandments. John Calvin was one of the the main reformers of the Protestant Reformation, and in understanding how the believer relates to the law, he came up with something called the threefold use of the law. This is what theologians call it. This is kind of like Sunday school this morning, but this is important. He said that the law is a mirror. So our relationship to the law changes. We we are not condemned by the law anymore. We're no longer under its its condemnation. Jesus has fulfilled the law. We look to him by faith. We're forgiven of our sins. Now Jesus says, though if you love me, you'll seek to follow me by keeping my commandments. The first way, the first purpose of the law is to be a mirror. And as you read God's law, love God with all of your heart. Love your neighbors yourself. Here's the particulars of what this looks like. You kind of say to yourself, ouch, like, that's hard. As we read it, the refl- we, are, we have the righteousness of God reflected back to us, how righteous he is, how holy he is, and that should necessarily lead us to what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance. When our boys were little, they would fight us so hard <laughs> to just bathe or shower or, you know, be clean, Right? And if you've got young kids, you know that it's such a struggle, especially with boys. Like this morning as I left the church, I, I heard the shower going. And I just thought, such good news. This used to be such a, <laughs> a fight, right? Like now that they actually care about society and what people think of them, they you know. But we would literally like say like, all right, guys, it's like 7.30, it's almost bedtime. Y- you guys need a bath. And they be like, no, 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 we don't need a bath. Like, and be like, no, you've been running around out in the yard all day. You literally have, like, dirt caked on your face. No, no, please, no, I don't need a bath. I don't need a bath. And I would literally take them into the, you know, the the bathroom and lift them up to the mirror and and just hold them there and go, you need a bath. Look, like, and, and see your face. See the grime. And it still didn't work, right? They'd be like, I don't care. <laughs> like, but the thing about the law of God is it lifts us, we see reflected to us the righteousness of God, our lack, our need for a bath, but the beauty of it, it also points to the bath itself, the cleansing blood of Christ. The law is a mirror. The law restrains evil. Just quickly on this. The law is incapable of changing human hearts. We know this. I know this as a parent. My whole point of parenting is to try to get my kids' heart. It's to shepherd their heart, to see their heart change. I want them to love God. I want them to love me. I want them to love their mama. I want them to love their neighbors or self. I want them to be just decent folk, right? So we have all these rules, all these regulations. None of them change their hearts. Take a bath. I don't want to. It doesn't che- lead to heart change, but it does restrain evil, does it not? it does restrain evil i promise you in my house it restrains evil now god's law is justice and when it's upheld in a society in a family in a person's life even if you're not a believer in god if you live out his law it will restrain evil in your life and restrain evil around others and will lead to greater justice in the lives of people this is his common grace for all societies god's law will restrain evil thirdly The law shows us how to please God, and this is where I want to spend the last part of our time. It shows us how to please our Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It shows us how to walk in His ways. Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, and then later in 14.23, He says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. God God really cares about this. Why? So that we can earn salvation? No, because you already have it. You're his child. You're his daughter. We're called to love God, to to love him from the heart, to have our motives change and so forth. And, And he's telling us through his law, through his commandments, his moral law, this is how I receive love. He who loves me will keep my commandments, John 14. This winter, it's been like the attack of water on our iPhones at our house like uh we all have smartphones unfortunately and like and they're expensive and and it's like I don't know if you realize they don't do very well with water. <laughs> and between toilets and swimming pools, two have two of five have gone down just this this winter. Just this last week Becky's was the latest. So I tried for 5 days to air, you know dry it out. And you're going to come up later and tell me what w- works. You know, the method I just used worked on two other phones, but for hers it, it didn't work. It, Five days of rice and hair dryers and you know taking it apart and it, j- it just didn't work. So save your opinion. <laughs> I'm already feeling defensive. Like you're going to tell me how I could have. So I went out and I got her a new phone. And then our our boy's car that my my middle son's driving right now. It's it's 245 thousand miles. It's a seven. It's literally a 15 year old car, and 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 it needed brakes really bad. So me and my neighbor put put the brakes on and the new rotors this past Friday evening and I got a text from Becky yesterday saying yesterday saying I love that you take care of me so well she's thanking me but she's also instructing me you know what I'm saying I'm not and I don't mean to put that on her <laughs> like that's true and she's told me many times before, my love language is acts of service. When, you, when I ruin my phone in the toilet and you give me a new phone, that, that's like an act of love to me. I, I feel your love that way. Uh, when, when you take care of the, the cars and you take care of the stuff, I would never take care of or want to take care of. like That is literally my love language, and I experience that. So she's sharing with me, that means so much to me, and it's instructing me, Scott, this is how your wife receives love. She really cares about this. See, I only want to love her the way I w- I've experienced love, right? Hugs, affection, words of affection, that kind of thing. That's not her love language. God has a great sense of humor. (laughs) So, what Jesus is saying is this. He who loves me keeps my commandments. What I'm telling you is how I receive love. What I'm telling you is how to walk in my love. There's many more things to say about this. Of course, like, this will be a blessing to you as well if you want the good life, if you want the blessed life, if you want your life restrained from evil and to actually not wind up like a guy like Ben at the end of your life just living with regret. You'll be wise in walking in God's will for your life. There was this hanging issue, though, here in this passage where Jesus says, You can't enter the kingdom of God unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's actually true. It really is true. You won't even enter the kingdom of God unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. What on earth does he mean? John Stott, another one of my heroes, writes this. Christian righteousness far surpasses Pharisaic righteousness in kind rather than degree. This is it. It's not that Christians succeed in keeping 240 commandments when the best Pharisee kept 230. No. Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it's deeper being a righteousness from the heart. Friends, religion always keeps righteousness on the surface. It's not about the heart. It's just doing the commandment to to either look good or to keep the commandment, trying to earn. Christian righteousness begins and it ends by faith and love. Love for God. Love for your neighbor when you finally realize, when you finally, finally realize and begin to walk in, and, and you'll f- have to fight for it every day, that in the gospel, Jesus received what you deserved, and you are the recipient of what Jesus deserves, you can't help but love God and want to follow him. I, not perfectly, but more and more, the more that dawns on you, the more you meditate on the fact that Jesus Christ literally d- died for you, like that he, he paid the penalty of death that you deserve, and he did so gladly and joyfully because he loves you, and not only that, you are now the recipient of eternal life, what, glory, his goodness, his kindness, his welcome, then you really, you just can't help but respond from the heart to say, well, I want to please him. I want to follow him. I want to walk in his commands. Imperfectly, yes, of course, in this life. But, but still, increasingly, we long to please the one who has loved us that well. How could we, how could we not? Not as one trying to claw his way into the kingdom, but one who has been welcomed. And now had their names changed to Father, you are my Father, and you are the sons and the daughters of God. Let's pray as we go to the table. Father, as we gather like these original disciples at your feet to hear this sermon for the next several weeks, I pray I pray for every one of us that we would increasingly believe what we know to be true but have such a difficult time walking in that the good life is found not in our kicking against your your law, not in rebelling against your law, but in walking in it and experiencing your love through it. Not not as one seeking to earn it, but because you've earned it for us. Not as, as people who looked at the surface of it only, but from the heart, our, our seeking a heart transformation to love you more. May we be able to join the psalmist someday by saying, we lift up our hands towards your commandments because they're so good. We meditate on your statutes with joy because they're so beautiful to us. May that be true of us as we meditate more and more on the sacrifice of of your son for us so gladly and joyfully. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.